0: Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone who's interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook, The Ultimate Guide to Sales Management, Solutions to the Top 10 Problems that Sales Managers Experience. Make sure to download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 305. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and we have another great guest for you today. He actually started his career as an Air Force fighter pilot, then became a commercial airline pilot and a university professor. So he's got quite the quite the resume, um, and he's now the founder of Lead Tac Leadership Development, where he provides training and coaching to leaders in all industries. He is based in the lovely and beautiful Atlanta, Georgia. So welcome to the show, Brandon Williams.
1: Elizabeth, thank you so much for having me and for that outstanding introduction. Always uh, a great time and pleasure and fun to talk about leadership and sales and more specifically uh, leadership in sales and work with a lot of sales teams in the past. So thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I'm just so glad that that you could be on the show. And I think our listeners are really going to appreciate um, hearing from you. But before we jump in to leadership, I just gave the, the top level bullets from your resume, but I'd love it if you could introduce yourself to our listeners and maybe talk a little bit about that journey that you went on from starting as a fighter pilot to where you are today.
1: Yes, thank you. And that's a great start because my past and how I got started and what I did before I got into this really kind of set me up for the mm. speaking and consulting I do now. So that's that's a great way to start out. I, uh, I'm actually from the Atlanta, Georgia area originally. Um, I live here now with my wife and my uh, two small children. Um, who are seven and eleven? So, Ooh. in addition to all my professional life, yeah, I've got the uh, the family and you know the standard stuff that comes along with that: coaching baseball and going to uh, dance recitals and cheer events and gymnastics and all kind of other stuff. And just in addition, to spending time with my family and doing a lot of there and trying to stay involved in my local community. So, in addition to my professional life, you know, this my my personal life has a has been a big impact as well. But like I said, I come from the Atlanta, Georgia area, uh, was born and raised here, went to the United States Air Force Academy after graduating high school. Because ever since I can remember as a little boy, I've wanted to be a pilot. That's what Mm -hmm. I wanted to do my entire life. And uh, going through it, you know, my dad had been in the military for a short amount of time. Um, Uh. I had another brother, grandfathers. So naturally, I kind of gravitated towards that a little bit. And it just seemed perfect, you know, go into the military, be a pilot as well. And it just, it it was perfect for what I wanted to do. So went to the United States Air Force Academy, graduated from there, went into Air Force pilot training. And after graduating from Air Force pilot training, uh, went on to fly the uh, F-15E Strike Eagle in the Air Force, a, a fighter aircraft in the United States Air Force. Um, so that was, you know, that was kind of when I, when I hit that moment, I finally was like, oh man, you know, I finally, finally hit it, finally made it, realized my goal, lifelong dream of being a fighter pilot. Mm -hmm. And here I am a little did I know though, how much more I had to learn and experiences and (laughs) so much more was going to shape my life. You know, that was just the beginning. Like most careers, you know, we, we feel that once we go through our initial training, you know, oh, we we've made it, you know, we've got there and as we all learn, you know, there's so many more experiences that we we have to grow and learn and master our craft and, and everything. So, but I tell you that because my time in the Air Force as a fighter pilot and other leader, like I said earlier, really set me up for a lot of the work I do now. Mm-hmm. So the first time I jumped in that F-15E, you know, I was in my young 20s and I jump in this high performance aircraft worth over $50 million and there's, you know, 250 (laughs) switches, dials and displays sitting there looking at me. Now, I mean, I'd had training, I'd had some academics, I'd been in the simulators. So, I mean, it wasn't like I was just straight cold Turkey. And I did have an instructor the first few times that flew with me that sat in the back, but you get in there and you look at all this and how intimidating that is. And you know, you're under tense and pressure to number one, perform, but also perform, in a certain amount of time. I mean, you know, there's only a certain amount of fuel in aircraft, so we can only fly a certain amount of time, and you're going very Mm -hmm. fast. So (laughs) there's a lot you have to do and master. And that's only just sitting there, you know, at at zero airspeed, zero knots airspeed, zero feet. So you're just on the ground quiet. So you can imagine when you fire that thing up,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and all the displays and switches come alive, and all the bells and whistles and the sounds and everything thrown at you, then you take off and you feel the thrust of those each motor putting out 25,000 pounds of thrust, so over 50,000 pounds total, pushing you forward or pushing you back in your seat, I should say. And here you are at the controls at it. And that's just taking off. And then you get up in the air and you're flying, can fly up faster than the speed of sound, whatever mm-hmm. other aircraft you're working with. And this is all just in a peacetime environment. You throw it into a high intensity or a high threat combat environment, or you throw it into an environment where you're dealing with weather or obstacles or... You're even leading other airplanes that are, that are following you. So, you know, imagine three of their teammates out there in these other aircraft that are in your formation, we would call it. But the point of all that is that's what, I, I, what defines complexity. Mm-hmm. And so when I look back on that, you know, the human mind, how did we operate in that environment? How did I do that for 12 years? And I look back on it and it's really the way we we trained, the way we captured what I call human factors of, of leadership and of training, you know, how we tap in to understand how the human mind operates in those environments and how we performed and how we made ourselves better and how we could operate in that intense, in an environment the human mind was never designed to operate in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It sounds similar to a lot of your your listeners working in their team saying, yeah, we move so fast. It's like, how do I have time to do all this stuff or how can, how can I perform in this? And so it really struck me at how we trained in that environment, how that really defined complexity and whether you're flying jets or you're in business or you're running any kind of team, you know, those same uh, human factors, as we say, that all those apply. And I carried that experience on into, as you said earlier, uh, as a major airline pilot, again, using those same uh, mm-hmm. techniques and the same mindset. And then I got into human factors, um, uh, human factors work where I as actually, I'm, or am actually an adjunct professor where I teach several courses but one of those courses i focus on is human factors and safety and then i've done a lot of work and studying that and then the okay. idea is taking these ideas these experiences and more in particular is human factors and how we we lead humans if you will in these environments and applying that to business uh, or any other type of organization mm-hmm. so that's that's my background he was a fighter pilot did that for 12 years uh actually went into the reserves as well part time. Airline pilot, adjunct professor, and then I've been a speaker and consultant for about eight years in this business, um, doing this as well. So, where I do keynotes, workshops, and classical leadership coaching and consulting—you know, for leadership development, if you will. So that's that's kind of me and and my background and and how I got into this and what that means.
0: Love that. Um, now, I have to confess, and I'm sure I'm probably not the first person to say this, as you were describing that, I was picturing Top Gun. So um, <laughs> all of my contacts for fighter pilot is Top Gun, which I have seen, you know, 10 billion times since my- Hey, Top that's
1: okay. I am, I am <laughs> fully part of the, as they call the Top Gun generation. That, that, that was my- you know, when I was younger, that was kind of my one of my main influences <laughs> into what I did. And so, <laughs> hey, the good news is, I think the second one here is about to come out here soon, finally. Yeah. So, they're going to release it, which is really, really exciting. But I, I have no problem with that at all.
0: <laughs> all right, perfect. So, I, I will just say that you, you must have been exactly like that, Top Gun. And even watching the movie, you know, that level of complexity, you're like, they are going really, really stupid fast. And even, you know, you think about it, driving a car. The faster you're going, the less time you have to make a, a decision, uh, the riskier it is. And that's so nowhere no, near the level of speed and complexity and expense of an aircraft of that size.
1: In a car, you know, if you have a flat tire or something, run out of gas, guess what? You just pull over. Yeah. <laughs> <But> yeah. A, <laughs> in an airplane, you don't really have that luxury all the time.
0: That's why I've always thought the idea of flying cars is a little more complicated than people might think.
1: Yeah, I think we have a long way to go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So um, aside from that, um, I love that idea that you've, that you've recognized that, yes, um, we have these environments that are so crazy complex, like flying a plane. And certainly we can picture the human brain did not evolve for that, right? We, we are not right. designed for that level of complexity. Um, right. but I, I love that you notice that this is becoming more apparent, even in areas that we don't think of as that complex, like business. So, what do you see as some of the impacts of complexity, or what are some examples of complexity that you see in a typical business that you might work with?
1: Yeah, and I think that's a great point what you just said, where you know, even though we we as humans have evolved over the years and, and through our existence. You know, the fact of the matter is, our brains—the way they're wired—really hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. You know, since the days of you know starting fires and you know just fighting for survival and trying to find food. You know, it's the same; Mm -hmm. those same connections are there. So, you know, how we how we focus and how the mind thinks, and it's all really centered around you know the, the way the human mind operates. Is we're very good at very tactically focused. So mm-hmm. whereas we have a task at hand, we focus on that task. For example, again, going back to the, you know, the cave person days of oh, I got to find food or I got to make a fire. Or, I got to build shelter. You know, we'd focus on one thing at a time. And as we evolved you know, we got into tribes, communities and villages and cities and and started to be able, because of technology, focus on other things. Well, what we found is as that technology increased, you know that the mind still was the same, so it may help us, you know, do other things and, and live a more comfortable life. But when it comes down to it, you know, the human mind is still only able to to really get tactically focused on one thing. I mean, you have mm-hmm. a lot of people that talk about strategic thinking, and that's mm-hmm. true. I mean, obviously everybody knows you have to have a strategy, you got to have a a path, a roadmap, and be able to think. You know, okay, what's our future? However, when it comes down to it, Elizabeth. You know, and, and you probably hear this from a lot of business leaders, especially in sales, where we typically stumble and we take those strategies and try to connect it to execution, you know, mm-hmm. where, the, where the rubber meets the road. And the reason is because we don't, we don't, the reason we get so frustrated with strategy and, and thinking big and where we're going is because it's hard for us to, to grasp that. I mean, it's hard for the human mind to take that and make it very, you know, uh, focused. And so we struggle with, you know, how do we take that strategy? How do we break it down so we can execute so it's very clear in our minds? But uh-huh. also more importantly, what I focus on is how do we lead in those environments? And that's where my company name of lead tact actually stands for leading tactically, because when you get down to leadership, whether it's sales or any kind of organization, what it really comes down to are those those human factors of tactical leadership. In other words, tapping into that. And so a lot of the times what I see is when we talk about business leaders and they talk about issues they have and you know, we have some, you know, I hear this a lot. Well, I got some bad apples on this team. And mm-hmm. I was, well, what, are, what are bad apples really? You know, what, what does that mean? And you'll talk to them because rarely, Elizabeth, and most of the teams and businesses I work with and, and probably what you've seen in this day and age, rarely do we have anybody that shows up to work or logs in and says, you know what, I'm going to do a bad job today.
0: Mm-hmm. Just,
1: I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to be professional, right? I mean, th- excuse me, rarely does that happen. And so what is that really, those bad apples? What I always go back to is what I was talking about earlier is these complex environments we work in. we can talk more about that here in a second. But what that really drives is human error. Because mm-hmm. human error, I mean, unfortunately, it's a natural state of our mind. It's, it's going to happen. I mean, we're all human. To Error is human, right? I mean, it's going to happen. But the more complex, the more I talked earlier as we increase our technology and all these tools that help us, yes, they're designed to help us, but it also drives human error. I mean, think about just a very simplified example, for, for example. You know, think about, you know, you look at, uh, for example, our Facebook login, just to show about complexity, right? So a lot of times now when you go log into something, you have the option of using your your Facebook login to log into that account or register for an account. So if you have all these accounts that use your Facebook login, let's say you go and delete your Facebook account. Now you, you think of the complexity of all these different accounts intertwined into your Facebook. You have to go back and change and register and find out. My point is, it's the same thing with humans, how we're all connected, how we all operate in these environments. Mm. We have so many intertwined, you know, interdependent variables or dependent variables when we work within an organization or a system. And that's hard for the human mind to grasp. You know, going back to that, you know, how do we, how do we picture all this and design all this for strategy? And so where we as business leaders get, get, you know, run down, I think is like I said, connecting these teams and these strategies on how we actually lead, how we actually execute. And again, the, what, I, what I think it goes back to is how we mitigate that human error. You know, how do we, how do we help our people uh, get past this human error? How do we help our people develop better what I call situational awareness? You know, how do we help them better with decision-making in very complex environments and understanding their roles and very clear, concise, and correct communication? You know, how do we do that? And so that's the struggles I typically see on on a big picture uh, macro level.
0: That's a really great context. And what's interesting is when you hear the words human error, I think your mind naturally goes to a few different examples, right? We hear like pilot error specifically when it comes Mm -hmm. to plane crashes, they'll say, you know, oh, this was pilot error. So human error. And then we'll hear it sometimes in like a medical context. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they, they accidentally amputated the wrong arm and that was Mm -hmm. human error. Um, or they left a medical device inside somebody when they did surgery and that was human error. And yet, like you said, when we have mistakes and poor performance on a team, instead of saying, oh, there's human error, maybe there's systemic problems, like we could identify in those other situations. Instead, we say they're a bad person, and we just right. fire them.
1: Right. And
0: it's, it's a really interesting thing to think about how we're, we're kind of systematizing. And also, um, we'll take a deep dive into this. But when we're saying yeah. human error, you're not even saying like, this is a bad person, this is a bad pilot. Right, it could be they were a great pilot and they made one mistake that one day, um, and, th- and and there's so much with that when we can kind of dispassionately just say an error happened.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Elizabeth, and that I love how you you describe that. How you use the word you know you use pilot error or you know human error in the medical world, and this is where a lot of the human factor study was was based in. You know, was was high reliability organizations, and I would argue that it probably started in the aviation industry was one of the, one of the first. And the reason is, as aviation got bigger and really took off in the the golden age, if you will, in the sixties and Mm seventies, what you saw, especially in the seventies and onto the eighties, what you saw is these large jumbo jets come around. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the early days of aviation, you know, an airplane would crash and we didn't have as much flying as we had these days. And so, you know, people would hear about an aircraft crash, like, Oh, that's too bad. And, you know, but I think people kind of, I don't want to say they expected it, but they're like, oh, yeah, well, that's, you know, a new technology. Things are going to mm-hmm. happen. And nobody really thought much about it except for we'd look at, you know, how we, what happened and go from there. But in the 70s, you saw some major, major aircraft accidents involving large jumbo jet airliners where there was a massive loss of life. Mm-hmm. And so then it started to come about not only in the aviation world, but in the, the you know, the, the public's mind of, oh, my gosh, you know, we can't keep doing this. We can't have this massive loss of life in a very, you know, what they forced people started to realize is, okay, we, we're taking air travel for granted here. I mean, this is a very complex, you know, uh, high error inducing environment. So how do we fix this? And what you were talking about earlier, I love it because what we typically would do, just like you were talking about earlier, you know, somebody makes a mistake or we lose a client or we lose a sale. And so what do we do? We're like, Oh, Elizabeth, you know, bad job. You shouldn't have done that. Don't do that again. You know, or like you said, we fire them or we move them or we just, Hey, we need to train that person up again. And so what we that's what I call that blame and train management approach or leadership approach. You know, that was kind of the classical old school way of looking at leadership and management. Somebody makes a mistake, bad, slap them on the wrist, tell them not to do it again, retrain them. Let's go about our day versus looking at it from a systems-based human factors approach. You know, what was the environment? You know, what was, and this is what we had to do in aviation too. When we'd have these accidents, we'd say, well, Because typically we just say it was pilot error. You know, hey, pilots, don't do this again. Move out our day. Mm -hmm. Well, instead of, like I said, no no pilot shows up and says, I'm going to do a bad job today. You know, I mean, nobody, (laughs) no professional for the most part, you know, 99% of people don't really do that. So you got to look at the environment. You look at it from a systems base point. You know, what was the organizational structure like? What was the organizational culture? What was the leadership or the oversight? What was this person's training or this crew's training like? Uh, what was the the human condition? I mean, the fatigue levels, the, Uh what was going on in their life at that time? You know, what was the cognitive and emotional overload? What were those human factors taking fact, you know, taking hold in that and how was the system set up to essentially set this, um, error up to happen? You know, I've talked to some doctors in the medical world and I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I can tell you literally in the medical world, there are thousands upon thousands of deaths every year. Mm-hmm. That are almost, you know, uh, preventable because of, and it's based on human error. Mm-hmm. Talking to a lot, And, and the medical world is definitely working to change that. Um, and I think they're probably about 10, 20 years behind the aviation world, but they are getting a lot better and they've instituted a lot of things. But my point is, when you look at that world, the system, as, as some other doctors have told me, they said the system is set up to get the results it gets. Sort of Uh words, you know, the lack of checks and balances or the lack of mutual support or the lack of how you communicate or or systems or structures or decision-making tools or whatever you want to call it, things to mitigate those human errors is not ingrained in the system. So you're right. You know, it goes back to a systems-based human factors approach. How do we look at these events when they happen? Not just at the individual person, but the entire system. Because what you're really trying to do, you're really trying to prevent this from happening in the future. So If one person was susceptible to this human factor, human error, then it's going to be susceptible to other people uh, down Mm -hmm. the road. And I would argue, you know, you look at the aviation world, they always say, like you said, oh, this accident was pilot error or this accident was a design fault. Well, I would argue that almost every single aviation accident, and this can account in other industries as well, but almost every single aviation accident can be attributed to human error. Because guess what? You know, someone designed that part that failed on that airplane. Someone mm-hmm. maintained that part that failed on that airplane, or what about weather? People say, "What? A, well, someone made decisions that put that airplane into a position that was in a bad weather environment." So mm-hmm. there's always humans behind everything we do. You know, someone designed these these robots that make these parts. Someone, you know what I mean? So there's mm-hmm. always a human in the chain that that ultimately started this chain of events that that caused this mishap. So yeah, and, and you're exactly right. You know, we this blame and train approach is outdated philosophy we, we realize just doesn't work because it doesn't change the system and it doesn't set us up for success in the future.
0: Definitely. Um, and I want to move into some of these best practices, but one thing I, I thought of as you were talking as well, um, I spent some time as a computer science major and, and have done a bit of programming and, um, and development of systems. And right. when it comes to um, implementing any sort of software platform, regardless of whether you're just implementing something off the shelf or building something custom for your environment, the a factor that any good uh, team keeps in mind is we have to design this for the lowest common denominator right. for somebody who didn't sleep last night because they've got a screaming baby and yep. they're li- they're on a conference call as they're trying to also do a task in the system, and <laughs> you know the the absolute highest. You know, cognitive load of other things, can they still accomplish the function? Or does it require that you are perfectly zen and you got a nice eight hours of sleep last night and you woke up and had a healthy breakfast and then you could log in and do the thing you wanted to do? (laughs) And so often we design these systems that will work perfectly in that perfect case, right? Not really taking into account the fact that. Very, very, very rarely, unfortunately, are people in that space, right? Um, right. The, the number of meals I have eaten in the last week <laughs> um, while on another call or um, okay. in a meeting or in the, you know, nine minutes until my next meeting starts is kind of ridiculous. And so we're, we're all kind of scrambling around doing three things at once, Uh And I think we have to recognize when we're creating systems, again, whether it's the software system, whether it's the system or process to do a surgery or to fly a plane or to get the plane ready to fly, um, taking into account the people that are there is so incredibly important.
1: That's exactly what human factors engineering is all about. I mean, you know, a lot of the factor of human factors is from a human perspective. how humans interact with machines, or even what I do is focusing how, how we as humans interact with other humans and leading uh-huh. humans. But when you look at it from, like you said, a lot of human factors got to start in the whole engineering realm, just that exactly what you just described. So in the aviation world, for example, how do we design this cockpit? So when a light goes off, it's going to get the pilot's attention right away. Uh-huh. You know, uh, For example, when I'm flying a commercial airliner, the autopilot, whenever it, is turned off whether by us intentionally or the system detects a fault and for some reason the Hub autopilot snaps off it is an incredibly loud blaring noise that goes uh-huh. off i mean there is no doubt in your mind right away what just happened or yep. for example we have a you know if you have an engine fire a red light goes off and this bell that extremely loud goes it will overtake any other sound in that cockpit again the idea being it's not just a little light down here that tells you hey there's a fire it's a very mm-hmm. loud obvious you know type uh, type sound so that idea of human factors engineering is exactly the idea behind that like what you describe that's a great way to look at it
0: perfect all right so let's get into the idea of human factors leadership because we've been talking about yeah. how people interact with systems and technology but right. uh, people cause complexity <laughs> and so uh, wh- how would you define human factors leadership in that context?
1: Yeah. So human factors leadership, you know, there's kind of two parts to my entire uh, model at Tech. You know, the the first is human factors leadership, which I'll talk about. And that really defines what an individual leader are, how you, the the concepts you want to think about as you lead your team. Mm -hmm. The other side of that, which incorporates a lot of the same, they go hand in hand is what I call a just culture, which is, the type of organization you want to have set up or the the Mm -hmm. type of organization you want to be. But going back to human factors leadership, like you just said, because this is a basis for a just culture, there's kind of six parts to it. And -hmm. these six parts are really just kind of areas that you want to different, I think the best way to sum it up, best ways to broadly think about six areas where you as a leader, the kind of leader you want to be, the kind of environment you want to set up, the kind of you know, aspects you want to think about when you, you think about your people or, or looking at your teams and how you're trying to drive that, that high performance in these very complex environments and how we mitigate human error. And so I'll just kind of cover these real quick, but the first one I call the, the first part is what I call inclusive leadership.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that involves, you know, empathy. A lot of those, um, EQ, emotional intelligence skills you mm-hmm. hear about, you know, empathy and that's where you're trying to embrace that just culture, which we can talk more about later, give a very clear what I call commander's intent, which commander's intent was something in the military we used as an idea that where, you know, hey, I'm not going to tell people how to do things, but I'm going to give you what the desired end state should look like. Mm. And I'm going to let you go out and you very autonomously come up with your own objectives and complete that. So that inclusive leadership, I call it. The second part is communication. A big part of that is clear, concise, correct communication. I call it C3 communication. And that's really about no assumptions. Uh, It's about briefing. So before we would go out and execute on a mission, and I do this in the airlines as well, or in the military, we would obviously conduct a briefing that was very clear on what our objectives were, what our roles were, and what we were going to face that day and areas of vulnerability that we were going to see that we could potentially encounter. Um, Situational awareness is the third one. And I think mm-hmm. situational awareness is one of the most important parts of this because mm. situation awareness is this idea, you know, when we're flying aviation, situational awareness is a huge term. It's, it's, it's used all the time, any kind of aviation you talk about, because literally what it is, is it's, it's where you are in your plane in a particular point in space and time. But mm-hmm. more importantly, where is your airplane going to be in the next few seconds, in the next few minutes? So you're always looking ahead. You're always trying to to think ahead what could happen next you know where is that weather out we got to face uh if we're flying down low where's the terrain coming up at um flying along an airplane you're always scanning your instruments so your engines and your systems on your aircraft and and one thing i like to call it is it's a little bit of healthy paranoia you know uh-huh. you always have this little thought in the back of your mind of you know to kind of combat complacency of what have I not thought about? You know, what What are we, you know, what's coming up? And then when something does come up, how do we maintain our calm? How do we maintain that focus, that situation awareness and don't get tunnel vision? So that's a large part of it as well. The fourth part is decision making.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: this is where a lot of my leadership coaching comes in. We focus a lot on this decision making part because decision making really comes down when you look at it from a team standpoint, uh, a decentralized execution. So a very autonomous uh, way of your people operating. So again, giving them that commander's intent. But at the same time, you delegate a lot of authority down to the lowest level so they can operate very agile, very pivoting, you know, not in a micromanaging type type process. And then when we talk about decision making, we talk about three steps, precision, I'm sorry, perception, decision and execution. Mm-hmm. Because typically when we look at bad decision, we either just look at the decision itself or the execution. What we should be looking at also is the perception. So mm-hmm. in other words, if we make a, a bad decision with a client or, you know, we, we made this decision and it caused a client to leave, we say, well, bad, you know, bad decision. Well, let's look at the perception. You know, maybe we didn't have all the information. Maybe we didn't get the right materials from the marketing you know, team. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, you know, we had a, a bad perception based on, on this or that. So what was the situation awareness before we made that decision? The fifth part is team roles. And team roles is really about what I call peer accountability. And we'll get into more of that later, probably, and also mutual support. So, this idea, you know, accountability always gets a negative connotation. But when I talk about peer accountability, it's that kind of accountability that's driven by our our peers and our teammates. So, that idea of mutual support, you know, uh, I'm not going to drop the ball because I don't want Elizabeth to look bad or our team to look bad. Not because me as Brandon, I'm worried about getting fired. Because I truly don't want Elizabeth, who's the team leader, to look bad. So how do we mm-hmm. instill that peer accountability and mutual support? That's all about team roles and understanding your roles in the team. And then finally, the last part I call it is I, I group into what I call knowledge. And that really goes back to mentorship, training, and then what I call standard operating procedures. So, you know, in the military, especially in a flying organization, we would have set standard operating procedures. But a lot of times people think that, well, people say, well, I don't want my people to be robots and just follow procedure." Well, exactly. And that's not what the idea was. The idea of standard operating procedures is to give your team's guide rails so that when they want me to go out and execute as that young 20-something taking three of their airplanes out there, separated for hundreds and hundreds of miles from any type of leadership authority whatsoever,
0: mm-hmm. I have
1: full authority to make decisions out there with my formation and my aircraft based on the situation I see. However, in the back of my mind, I have standard operating procedures that are serve as guide rails so that I do stay within some certain boundaries, because as we know, autonomy without any kind of accountability or alignment or anything can be very dangerous. So having those standard operating procedures that, that give your people a set standard process for some things they don't even have to think about, and they can kind of just go with standard procedures and put their brain power into other more complex decision making is very important. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the six parts of inclusive leadership communication, situation awareness, decision making, team roles, and then knowledge. And obviously there's a lot that goes into those parts. And a lot of times companies I work with, they, they just need to focus on a few of them or all of them, or
0: mm-hmm. it's all very highly
1: customized based on what different teams experience.
0: Definitely. Um, I was taking notes as you talk. And as I, as I looked through my notes, something that really came out is this significantly reduces the burden on the leader, because their role is being reduced to what they can and should do based on the level of information they have. And they're distributing both some responsibility and accountability, but the ability to make decisions down to the people who at a tactical level are able to do that. And so if you have clearly communicated your intent and you've got an inclusive team and people understand that they, you know, they're able to to do things and try things. And you've clearly communicated um, what needs to happen. You as a leader maybe have had more situational awareness. And so you've raised to your team, hey, the risk is this or we need to be conscious of this. Um, and then you've decentralized decision making to people with clear roles based on SOPs that they have. You're enabling other people on the team to make the best decisions possible in their specific areas so that you aren't that, that overall bottleneck um, trying to make decisions about things that you don't even have all of the background because you, you can't. And so it's really kind of just giving the, the responsibility to the right people and, and helping the leader just do the things that the leader does best.
1: Absolutely, and and what does that really do for the leader? Is you know I talked about situational awareness. Mm-hmm. Is number one, it gives them that big picture, thirty thousand foot, you know, big picture overview to help them with their situation awareness. Because like yeah, you said,
0: time and space. Right.
1: I mean, at a, at a, depending on what level of leadership you are in a certain organization, you know, you you can't be down in the weeds. I mean, absolutely not. That that's that's a recipe for failure. Because mm-hmm. either you don't know how to delegate, uh, you're afraid to delegate or, you know, your, your team is just not set up for you to, to allow people to delegate. You know, you don't have those human error traps in place or human factors, uh, systems in place. So either way though, it's, it's a recipe for, for failure. And it's a recipe for, like I said, any kind of, this is all based on complexity. You know, how do we, how do we operate faster, more agile, stay ahead of the competition, the environment, the market, the regulatory environment, you know, how do we do all that? And that's all these things are exactly it. You know, the more you can decentralized, the more you can delegate down. I mean, you, you can't obviously, you know, the uh, you know, you can't let everybody you, not everybody's in charge, there's always a 51% yes. vote. However, <laughs> you know, we have to be able to delegate that authority down. You know, for example, when I would go to a in the air force when I was active duty in the deployed location, I mean, we had generals and other high up air staff members back in the Pentagon that had a long range strat- strategy based on what our civilian leaders had said they want us to do and what our, our national objective, you know, national security <laughs> strategy said and things we needed to do, but guess what? They weren't handing down, you know, the tactical objectives for that day or even that month. I mean, so, you know, when I would, I mean, that's what, honestly, when us, us young captains and in, in our young twenties and, and late twenties and young thirties, that's what we were doing. We were literally designing the plans that related to that overall strategy and that's mm-hmm. why it worked. That's how you're able to do that. And oh, by the way, we were forced to do that because guess, like I said, when I was separated by literally hundreds, sometimes thousands of miles from any type of leadership authority with me and my aircraft and three other teammates and other aircraft out there, guess what? I had to make this because we didn't know what kind of situation we were going to face. Now we knew our commander's intent. We had rules of engagement. We had standard operating procedures that kept us within guide rails. But we had to be able to make decisions in a very complex environment, understanding that situation awareness, having very decentralized execution authority. That was absolutely the only way it would work. And in business, it's the same thing. I mean, I think sometimes we think we, we shouldn't because in this day and age, we can always connect with our people, whether it's through you know text, voice, FaceTime, mm-hmm. Zoom, whatever, or, or even when we're together in an office. Um, but I so I think sometimes we we kind of it's hard for us as leaders sometimes to relinquish some of that because of that mm-hmm. reason. But I think once we you see that and you are able to delegate that authority around, I think you see the results of that, like you said.
0: Well, and what's interesting, um, and again, I love that idea of the model for analyzing decision making where there's the perception, decision, and execution. Because There's a big picture perception that can be had at the leadership level. If we go back to the military, you know, the general sitting in the Pentagon, they know the state of the world overall, what's our relationship with, you know, an individual country, um, big picture, things like that. And that's the situational awareness. But then if you're on the ground in a place um, and then up in the air in that place, you're going to know. Uh, more. You're going to have the ability right. to perceive more that's specifically applicable. And the same right. thing happens in an organization. You know, I could be the, the chief revenue officer of a company mm-hmm. and right. I've got my big picture strategy. Um, but then I'm sitting in the home office in New York or Atlanta or Kansas City. And then I've got a sales rep in Southern California and another sales right. rep or sales manager in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And they know more. About the situation on the ground. They know what the local competitor is doing in that space. Right. They know what the companies in their area are concerned about. Um, right. They know about, you know, weather patterns, honestly, that, that impact, you know, I'm thinking yep. about family in the upper peninsula of Michigan. They had right. snow not that long ago. Um, right. And that, that might impact your company. And so they're they're able to perceive more, um, right. which helps them make better decisions. Again, not letting them just make any decision. They you know it's not like you can fly the plane anywhere you want to go. It's you've got guidelines, you've got <laughs> SOPs, you've got like right. you know a context to fit it in. But um, you're empowering people to take the the benefit of their situation and and really bring that to the decisions that they're able to make.
1: Yeah, you said that perfectly. Empowerment. And I'd actually wrote that down because that was the second part of this this decentralized execution idea was when you you give people that ability. You get I mean, because when we look, we all know what do humans really want when it comes down to it. You know, we want our own autonomy, you know, we want to make our own decisions, we want, you know, freedom. Call it whatever you want, but autonomy. Uh, the ability to go out and build, make something on your own. I mean, when it gets down to some of our human core, that's really what we want to do. So we always hear about empowerment and and all these leadership books and and business books and things like that. But that's really one of the key ways you do it is is that decentralized execution. And I think that fits nicely into what I said earlier about this idea of a just culture, Mm -hmm. the kind of organization you want to set up. And this, this just culture really is you know, I always say just culture is something we've used in aviation and especially the aviation safety world for a long, long time. And I always joke that just culture was really psychological safety before psychological safety was cool. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like that was the exact idea, this environment where non-retributional, you know, no matter what's your background, what's your role, what's your title, you know, who you are, everybody has a voice at the table. Everybody has a, an idea, you know, has a, the authority to stop the operation, to speak up and say something when they see something wrong, you know, how do we, cause it all goes back to it's a systems-based thinking. So mm-hmm. instead of, you know, like I said earlier, the aviation world learned this the hard way in the seventies and eighties, instead of the aviation world be like a, being an investigation focused when something bad happens world, you know, cause what is an investigation? An investigation, you're really trying to find blame, Elizabeth, mm-hmm. right? You're trying to point out blame. That's not what we want we're looking, you know, investigations for criminal actions. We're looking for a systems based approach, which helps the team perform better the next time. So we develop Mm -hmm. lessons learned and we're looking, we're not necessarily trying now, of course, you're always going to get into situations where you have a team member that may repeatedly make the same errors or find the same issues. And that's a little different topic. That's more of a mentorship type focus situation, you know, but when you're really coming down to it, it's really this just culture, this inclusive leadership environment where everybody has kind of a seat at the table. Anybody can speak up. Anybody can point out errors. Anybody can you know, correct ourselves or, or make the team better, if you will. And there's three parts to that. There's that mm-hmm. decentralized execution piece that I talked about, the peer accountability piece, and then the what I call open, honest communication or open, honest debriefing. So the decentralized execution we kind of talked about—that's really where the the trust comes in. That and, and trust is really that bedrock of that that psychological safety uh, that we talked about. Because a lot of times the business leaders as well and business teams, what do we hear? The number one complaint is is a lack of trust, mm-hmm. you know, lack of autonomy. You know, buddy, well I'm afraid to make a decision or I'm afraid to do this because I don't want to get you know slapped on the wrist. So having leaders that really embrace that uh, that decentralized execution and then the peer account the peer accountability piece you know that second part because remember peer accountability decentralized execution complete autonomy without any kind of accountability can be dangerous Definitely. so but it's just peer accountability it's not the, the what i call it's not the vice principal accountability of you know i'm going to come down on you if you if you do this or act out of line right no i think accountability gets a negative connotation and it shouldn't because peer accountability is really that that mutual support and that's only built through camaraderie morale, knowing each knowing each other, you know, it's not what you say, but it's how you say things a lot of times, all of those things and how we build that team morale, that mutual support, something that was huge in military units, especially flying units and combat units where you're going out and you're bleeding and sweating together. So you, you know, you, you become very close knit, you know, who you worked with is who you played with. So it was kind of a natural, you know, inclination in an environment like that. And so how do we instill that in our, in our business teams, especially in a remote environment like now, how do we Uh do that? You know, build that morale and mutual support. And then finally that open, honest communication. And where this really comes in is, is when we would, what I call an open, honest debrief. So in the military Uh and even airline world, after every flight and sortie, no matter if it was peacetime or combat, Elizabeth, we would always come back. We'd always go in a room, shut the door in the military, at least. And we would talk about what went wrong, what went right, and you know how we're going to fix things next time. Mm-hmm. But it was not a you know focusing on who did what or wrong. It's what the team did right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And it was a systems-based thinking environment. It wasn't an investigation. It was this idea where we went in there, everybody offered up something, everybody pointed out the errors of the team, and then we took out lessons learned for that day. And then how we were going to institute that within the organization, within the team. And the beauty of that though, is it was this pure honesty environment, psychological safe environment, where it didn't matter what rank you were. I mean, I've been in debriefs where there were literally generals in that room that outranked me by probably 20 years or more. And I was the flight lead that day and I'm pointing out mistakes that they they made or the team made and they were okay with it. And then we get up and we got the door and it's back to, you know, yes ma'am or no ma'am or no sir, yes sir. And it's back to our day, you know, because when you go in that room as a debrief, all the rank comes off, all the titles mm-hmm. come off. It's purely a... How did the team do today? But then we go outside and it's back to our normal, you know, military rank structure because there is a, a need for rank, obviously, in the military and other organizations. But being able to talk about what we did right and wrong and more importantly, having leaders that allow their people to talk about what went right, what went wrong, because we've all worked for leaders that either, number one, will never admit their own shortcomings or even worse will blame their people for their own shortcomings mm-hmm. and nothing's more demoralizing and, and destroys empowerment and trust in an organization than something like that. So that just culture environment, decentralized execution, which I call leadership backed autonomy, peer accountability, that mutual support morale, and then that open, honest communication, reinforcing that with these very clear, uh, open and honest debriefs.
0: I, I love that. And I, I, Get the impression, and I might be wrong here, but it's almost like they build on each other. Because I've definitely seen organizations and teams where they had a level of decentralized execution. Right, we've got all of our branches, and the branch manager is able to make decisions for their branch. But right. they didn't always have the next two. And then I've seen where they had the decentralized execution, and then they also have pure accountability. There's the understanding that hey, I'm a sales rep in the Oklahoma branch, and if right. I Don't perform. The customer service rep who sits beside me when I'm in the office might lose her job because we need to have um, the success of our branch. And so we're all here for each other. And she understands that if she's obnoxious to customers, um, then we're going to lose those customers (laughs) and close down the branch. And so we all have accountability to, to do a good job. And then, but we've also also seen that where you have those first two, but you haven't yet gotten to open and honest communication and open and honest communication seems like it's the hardest, but the most potentially impactful if you can get there. Because I've seen in in highly evolved organizations, I'd say, where they have a debrief process like that. And Mm -hmm. the best I've seen, they actually got together as a team. After every deal closed, whether it was a close win or a close loss, and they mm-hmm. had a debrief process. Right. And because they did it every time, first of all, it's not like we're analyzing your loss because it's a big loss and, and let's right. really figure out what we did wrong. It's we analyze every single loss, you know? Right. Um, and and so we're able to get um get big picture uh findings as well as right. remove that sense of. You know, there's a laser pointed at you, um, right. but then also analyzing the winds, and because again they did it every time, I don't know that they got as fully um, depersonalized right. as as you're recommending here. So I think there's still room for improvement, yeah. but it's it's just such an imp- it's such a powerful concept because the more you can really take time and again this isn't let's sit for you know 5 hours together right. it could be exactly. a, a 20 minute discussion <laughs> but um taking that time you learn lessons every time
1: and that you're, you're you're right and and there's so many things there i can i can talk about in the debrief i'll try to sum it up real quick cuz you said some great stuff like you said it doesn't have to be a 5 hour and it shouldn't i don't any ever be a five hour unless it was a massive project i guess but you know we're we're, it can be you know an hour it can be even be on the back like you said on the back let's let's go have a cup of coffee and talk for 15 20 minutes about this sales call you know Mm -hmm. or let's debrief the sales call really quick or let's you know talk real quick but just me and you elizabeth we're long ones part of this let's go over this real quick Mm -hmm. um or it can be you know you have a team and you you just did a, a have quarterly results or you're trying to debrief a a major client deal or something like that. So you go in a room and you may want to a, allot off an hour or two and go over the debrief and how we do it. So that's a great point. It, it doesn't have to be something we just do after major task. I mean, it really shouldn't be that as a matter of fact, because one of the reasons we have such a hard time with this open, honest communication and debriefing is because like you said, we don't do it. I mean, it's not, we don't want to do it. It's not natural. It's not um, human nature to go in a room and talk about, you know, our shortcomings and mistakes we made, especially in front of our peers or even our, our superiors. So, it, it you know, the more you do it, it's like anything else. You know, the more you do it, the better you get at it. The more you do it, the the more you get used to it. And more more importantly, though, that you see the results that it drives. Mm-hmm. And when you see that, that's when it becomes really addictive because you see how how powerful this tool is that we can come in, take down those barriers to communication. Talk about our mistakes and our successes because we want to debrief successes too, right? If we hit a home run, we want the entire team to hit a home run. So what what causes? Mm-hmm. The other thing about successes, when you debrief successes, what you find a lot of times, Elizabeth, is you find glove saves. You know, mm-hmm. hey, this this <laughs> this project, this deal or this account, this went really great, but whoa, we almost, you know, we almost yep. tanked right here. Thank gosh Elizabeth stepped in and made this decision because she hadn't, this would have been a really, really bad. Mm-hmm. it went really bad. So let's deep, cause we want to have glove saves, right? We want things to go uh, really good from the start, but you're exactly right. That repetition, doing it all the time. Uh, and, and you make a really good point. I think a lot of times what we get wrong with these is we don't set up that true honesty environment because mm-hmm. again, it goes back to that ego thing. I mean, it just, no matter what way you cut or slice it again, going back to the way we're wired, it's never natural for us to, point out our errors or or become vulnerable or, you know, uh, talk about the errors of a team or mistakes we missed, especially when we were the team leader. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the only way you can do that again is, is the way to start is you have to have leaders that display that you have to have team leaders or organizational leaders or sales leaders that can come in and say, look, here's where I made a mistake. Here's where I could have set you guys up for success better. What do you have for me? And open up communication cells because when people see the leaders do that, guess what? Mm -hmm. Now they're more open to say, okay, well, if the leader can do this, then I can definitely open up and make the team better as well by showing what I saw that went wrong or better what I could have done better. But again, it goes back to leaders owning it. It goes back to repetition and realisms. It goes back to knowing how to debrief. I mean, if you and I just go and sit down a room, let's talk about how this podcast went. We have no structure whatsoever. I mean, we can talk about some good and bad things, but what are we, what, where's our focus really going to be? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, let, let's, let's focus our finite amount of time on, on really some key areas. And what I always say is I call it a human factors debrief. And again, it, it goes back to that system-based thinking, you know, it, it, let's look, I call it P-E-A-R, Pair. So person, environment, actions, and resources. So person, what was the psychological, you know, physical and, and psychosocial environment we had on this team? Cause this, this really goes back to that person, the, the person mm-hmm. set up, you know, what was the mental state of our team members? Next is environment. What was our physical environment, our organizational environment, our market environment, regulatory environment, all these different things in, that focus our decision-making process on this deal or this, this project? Next is actions. You know, what was our, our uh, decision-making ability? What were our perceptions when we make these decisions? Mm-hmm. You know, what was our knowledge of the situation, of this customer, of the competition? You know, did we have the right skill sets for the team members that were established? And then finally, resources, that fourth part, the R part. You know, what was the tools we had available to us? Did we have the right tools? Did we have the right team set up? Did we have the right training for this team set up? So when you really want to look at what I always say when I try to help these companies debrief, I give them four main areas you want to look at. P-E-A-R, person, environment, actions, and then resources. And I think that helps kind of guide that systems-based thinking approach versus saying – Hey, Elizabeth, on the podcast, you know, I thought that I didn't do this very well or you didn't do that. We don't want to want to try to get away from that as much as possible. We don't try to make it that that systems based thinking approach when we debrief.
0: Definitely. And you're not taking the person out, right? That's the the very first letter in the exactly. pair. But right. um, it's not just about blame. And I, I like that you went back to something we were talking a few minutes ago in terms of decision-making and analyzing decisions that you need to look at perceptions and information. Right. Because something that I think is really key in a debrief is, okay, typically, it, let's, let's give the context of a sales opportunity um, or a deal. There's going to be there's this there's an inside sales rep maybe who had initial engagement with the prospective customer and so they're right. going to collect some information they had some information before they did the outreach and then there's maybe the outside sales rep or senior sales rep who scopes the opportunity and works it to a close um, and then maybe the marketing team gets involved or the delivery team on scoping something out and if they all have different levels of information about the prospect. Right. they're going to make different decisions. If you were to just give somebody inside the organization, um, like somebody on the the operations delivery side to say, Uh okay, I need you to put together a proposal and I'm going to give you three bullets about the client. Please give me the proposal. That's very different from they sat in on a couple of meetings and they really understood the client and what they're looking for. And they're going to come up with different recommendations. So the more you can analyze the the information people had before they made their decisions, the better I think you're going to be able to capture, hey, we should have a sheet of information that we collect so that we can hand it off to the operations team before they develop their proposal, um, such that they're able to to get the right information. What are the questions that we need to make sure the salesperson is asking? Let's list those out. Um, and, And the more you do that, um, like you said, the glove saves, right? Um, right. Yeah, this was a rest. Oh, th- the person just had a uh, had an amazing leap of intuition, and they came up with an idea that the prospect really liked. Okay, you know, let's not depend on that magical bolt from the sky. Right. Um, how right. we cou- how could we set up for that success in future?
1: And it's so interesting that 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 came up what you just described because what there's no accident. The, these these six parts in this human factors model or the just culture that I talked about, because what you just described is exactly what situational awareness is,
0: mm-hmm.
1: is when you said, okay, so instead of this three bullet points, it's, if you were involved in, in the analysis of the meetings or the pre-calls or, you know, whatever leading up to this, you would already have a lot of that situational awareness. So how do we, as leaders, give our people, set them up better for situational awareness? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we help them identify those areas of vulnerability or have that, you know, very much that, that big picture Approach because if we don't, if we just have these three bullet points you describe it, what does that cause us to do? That's tunnel vision on a very Mm -hmm. short-sighted, looking through a soda straw type mentality versus you know having the big picture of what we're actually looking at with this client, the market, the regulatory environment. You know, you name it. Having all because that's exactly what situation awareness is. How many variables can you can you take in Mm -hmm. and make a decision again based on perception and make a good decision? That's Mm -hmm. why situation awareness is so important because our decisions. Are based on our situation awareness of the situation. Our decisions are based on that perception. If we have very limited, um, you know, information, very limited situation awareness, well, guess what? Our decisions are probably mm-hmm. not always going to be that great because we we're, we're working in a very closed environment, and so that that is critical, like you just said, of having that that ability to increase that situation awareness and really drive those better decisions.
0: And in organizations. A lot of times, you have to create systems for information to flow, such yeah. that people are acquiring the information and they're getting the correct situational awareness. Because you've got somebody sitting in the office um, in their little silo, and mm-hmm. you're out there in the field having a conversation with a customer. So, how do you make sure that the information flows back, such that you don't have a lot of situational awareness and context that hasn't been brought into the organization? So, I think that's that's a really key component. Um, something that I wanted to touch on momentarily, uh, because I think that this is some, This is maybe an output of a just culture, or maybe it's a component to it. When we think of the US military, especially, I think that's one organization where diversity has been really successfully um, represented over the years, before we had mm-hmm. equality in American right. society, for example, right. we were able to have better equality, I would say, on a racial yep. um, standpoint, for example, um, right. in the military. And when you have this kind of pulling away from looking at a person um, and, and blaming them, mm-hmm. you have the ability to have a lot more diversity on your team, and um, and you're kind of taking away any blame that you would put or or reasoning that you might put on something based on right. who they are, a group that right. they're in, instead just looking at the systems and the processes around them. And so that could really yeah. help with that.
1: Absolutely, and I use this all the time for just culture. You know, again, like I said, just culture was cool before psychological safety was was even a term or was you know even mm-hmm. an idea. And just like you said. In the military we even practice this idea just by the nature of our mission and what we did before even just culture was a term
0: because
1: Mm -hmm. just like you said in an aviation environment or a military unit or you combine that an aviation combat unit you have an environment where it does not matter who the person is where they come from you know what what makes them tick what they're at the end of the day you know they're a human that is a part of your team and if we as a team don't perform to a certain level, you know, mm-hmm. bad things are going to happen. And so you're exactly right. I mean, this idea of, you know, we, we you have to listen to everybody. You have to bring everybody to the table. It's like that, again, that camaraderie, mutual support, high mm-hmm. morale type mentality. We're all going into this environment together as a team. Therefore, we have to operate as a team, assistance-based thinking. It does not matter, you know. Where you come from, or who you are, because I mean, sadly, it's like they say in the military: the best way to drive this home is when that flag is draped over that coffin. It doesn't matter the kind of person, who they are, their color, where they come from, their national origin. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, they were a member of your team, and they're, you know, when when I'm when you're out there in a high stress, complex environment that doesn't even cross your mind who that person is, you know? I mean, it's at the end of the day, it's how do we survive? But more importantly, how do we perform to a certain level? So you're exactly right. This idea of just culture, when you take the human, I don't say take the human element out of it, but when you take that blame, you know, investigative approach out of it, it really depersonalizes it a bit. So we look at it from a systems-based thinking. Now we all know that the human condition and the human factor is a very important part of that. But when we're looking at it from a big picture systems-based approach, we have to be able to detach from that situation. And then a, another important key part of situation awareness, kind of talking about this diversity piece I always talk about, is situation awareness, not of only our teams, but of our own personal biases. Mm-hmm. And situation is awareness of you know our past experiences and where we came from and how that may, we have to consider that, especially as a leader, because we have to have a situation awareness of how we communicate someone. Because mm-hmm. the way you know, a leader may communicate to me or may communicate to you, Elizabeth, if we're on the same team, they may say, Hey, Brandon is kind of, he responds better this way. Elizabeth responds better this way. So, you know, I just need to consider that. I don't have to tailor every time I talk to somebody, you know, tailor how I talk to them, but just have that in the back of your mind, a little bit of the situational awareness of people and how they respond to certain situations. Because mm-hmm. again, as a leader, that's again, tapping into that human factors and really understanding how we lead our people.
0: Definitely. Um, so important. All right. Well, I, I definitely think we could keep talking about this pretty much forever. I find this such <laughs> yeah, a fascinating that. conversation. So much, I <laughs> but I look at the clock and I'm like, oh my goodness, 59 minutes. So fast, probably I should wind things down. Um, a question I always like to ask our guests is what are some resources that you would recommend to our listeners? And that could be books, um, you know, talks, videos, um, anything that you that you would recommend?
1: Well, I mean, as your listeners probably know, there's so many podcasts and mm-hmm. uh, books and, and, and articles and Things out there in leadership or even uh, little leadership lessons from the military that you can find and even human factors. Um, obviously you can go to my website, www.leadtac which is uh L-E-A-D-T-A-C.com. Um, there's stuff on there. You can contact me. I'm glad to send you, you know, I have some stuff I can send anyone that it's obviously free and information they can have. But if I could just, you know, if I could probably come up with one book for each topic, if you are just kind of one uh-huh. area, there's a man named Dr. James Reason, who was kind of the the father of a lot of this human factors and human error in aviation, a lot of the stuff I talked about. Uh, so Dr. James Reason, if you look him up, there's all kinds of stuff he's put out in books. And then I think one of my favorite speakers and thought leaders that I've really learned a lot from and, and really sparked a lot of this, he talks a lot also about the human condition leadership is Simon Sinek. Uh-huh. And I, I would say anything he writes or anything he puts out in podcasts, I would highly encourage your listeners to go and read. He even, a lot of his basis, if you've ever read Leaders Eat Last, one of his most famous books, that whole idea is the concept of, you know, the idea of Leaders Eat Last, what well, he noticed, he studied a Marine unit for a long time. And what he always was shocked at is how in a Marine unit, the enlisted, uh, which are the ones, that, so classical military Set mm-hmm. up for listeners that don't know anything about the military. You know, you have your enlisted and then you have your officers. Officers are typically leaders that give the orders. Enlisted are typically the, you know, the ones in the units that are that are taking the orders and following orders. I mean, there's definitely leadership structures within enlisted as well when you have non-commissioned officers. But for mm-hmm. the most part, big picture, that's the idea. But what he was shocked at was you'd have the ju- most junior enlisted people would get in line first for food, and the officers would naturally always wait at the very end, all the way to the highest ranking, would be the very mm-hmm. last one to eat, whatever was left. And he was shocked at that because he's like, wow, how opposite that is from so many corporations and businesses I've seen where, you know, you have uh, C-suite or executives that get the upfront parking spot or the executive mm-hmm. lounges or, you know, you name it, the separate lunch areas. And he's like, you know, this idea that you're showing your people that you come first and how you develop this camaraderie and this morale. Anyway, Leaders Eat Last, that's his book. And he, he uses a lot of the military concepts that I've talked about or it's very similar into how you you foster those environments. But Simon Sinek of some of the leadership stuff, I love his stuff. I mean, there's so many others out there too. And then uh, Dr. James Reason for Human Factors, I think is is a great, if you want more background, technical, scientific information on it.
0: What a name for somebody who studies human factors! Your last name, I reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right? I think if you don't become a a, a doctor, in that case, you're, right, your parents. There get you sad. go.
1: And there's there's a lot of stuff in the medical world, the nuclear power industry, just because it there's high reliability organizations, same concepts as aviation. Mm-hmm.
0: Definitely. All right. Well, you mentioned your website, but um, Brandon, if you want people to more learn more about you and your work, is there anywhere else they should go in addition to your website?
1: Yeah, you, my website. You can connect with me on LinkedIn as well. Um, definitely reach out to me on Brandon Williams uh, Speaker. So Brandon Dash Williams Speaker is a good way to find me on LinkedIn. Uh, my website's the the main source I use for incoming traffic. I um, haven't put out a book yet. Working on it as well as a podcast. So maybe I'll reach out to you about a podcast sometime, Elizabeth, because I am working <laughs> on that. But for now, uh, it's just you know ingrained and and um, working with clients and you know being on podcasts like this, which is awesome. So a lot of stuff going on. But yeah, the main way is just reach out to me or reach out to me in my email address, bwilliams at leadtac, dot com. Or you can also reach out to me from my website.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so, so much for speaking with me today, Brandon. I, I just found our conversation so fun.
1: Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much again for having me. It was a great time.
0: And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and resources for everything that Brandon and I have been talking about today at criteriaforsuccess.com/pod305. Make sure to tune into the podcast next week for another great guest. If you enjoyed the show today, please recommend us to a friend. That's the best way to help more people discover the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, make sure to do that. That way, you'll hear every new episode as soon as it goes live. You can subscribe for free wherever you're listening right now. We love to hear feedback. You can leave us ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts or email us with direct feedback, questions, and guest suggestions at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CFS Playbook. And don't forget to check out the blog at criteriaforsuccess.com slash insights. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success. Happy selling!